Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to another episode of After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, how am I doing tonight? You're doing unbelievably well. That's, that's a little bit rushed off your feet, I believe. Pretty accurate, Phil. I'm impressed with your powers of prognostication. Oh, well, it's all, you know, been in Cerebrus for a very long time. Right, I've right. Seen what's going down. Uh, let me see world. if I can uh, use my psychic powers and see how okay, you're doing. Okay, go on. I'm going to say you're doing pretty well, all things considered. <gasps> How did you know? Well, you know, listen, when you get when you host a podcast together, people might not know this, but you develop sort of a bond. You know, it's like and it goes yeah. beyond just words about movies. You know, it's it's a deeper connection. It's like Elliot and E.T., if you will. Oh, a nice reminder or callback. <laughs> That's right. A callback to our last yeah. episode. Yes. So if you haven't listened to that one, people carry on listening to this episode, but then go back. Well, it might automatically play anyway. But yeah, it's going to be there. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Won't be hard to find. So. Yeah. Oh, just to, and also for other listeners who may be just joining us, uh, Mike is over in America and I am sat here in England. Yes, so, so we are both in the middle of some severe political upheaval, it seems yes. like. Phil's just had some. I'm maybe going to have some in a few months. So it's an interesting time. But you know what? We're here yeah. to talk about movies, not politics. So. so that's why we're looking at two political movies today. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, we're doing The American President and All the Presidents <laughs> Men. No, just kidding. Uh, although that could make for a good double feature. But, yeah, actually, it could. Have, um, yeah. Although all, all the Presidents Men is based on a true story. So obviously that, that would negate our rules. But such a good film. Oh, for sure. But what films are we talking about tonight, Phil? A bit later on, we will be doing After the Endings for The Rock. That's the one by Michael Bay and starring Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. Very good. That, that was another bad impression. <laughs> Our string of impressions <laughs> just keeps keeps going and keeps getting better every week. You'll never guess who this one is, and I literally mean that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Before that, we'll be doing Wes Anderson's 1998 film, Rushmore which was Jason Schwartzman's debut film and also stars Bill Murray and Olivia Williams. And this week, our top 10 films will be covering the year 1945. Very good. All right, so why don't we dive right into things, Phil? Take us through the events of Wes Anderson's Rushmore. I certainly will. Okay, then we have Max Fisher, played by Jason Schwartzman. He's a 15-year-old scholarship student at Rushmore Academy in Houston. He's in the most extracurricular activities of anybody, but he's the least scholarly student in the school and has an ongoing sort of feud with the headmaster, played by the always reliable and brilliant Brian Cox. Meanwhile, another character introduced is Herman Bloom, played by Bill Murray, who's the head of a multi-million dollar company. But he finds himself bored, his marriage isn't working, and his two sons are idiots. Absolute idiots. Herman gets to know Max, and they become friends, and Herman has an admiration for Max. He likes the way he's always doing stuff and his get-up-and-go. Both Max and Bloom fall for a new teacher, Rosemary Cross, played by Olivia Williams. She's new to Rushmore and recently lost her husband. Max, though, become, goes too far and becomes obsessed with her, but little does he know that Bloom starts dating her. Max tries to get an aquarium built, but ends up getting expelled. So he goes to the public school and meets a lo lovely girl called Margaret Young, 
she really likes Max, but he totally ignores her. Max ends up finding out that Bloom is dating Rosemary and doesn't like it and tries to get his revenge. Max and Bloom become bitter enemies and their actions escalate. Max tells Bloom's wife of the affair and things go from bad to worse. Max ends up giving up as he knows even if he won Rosemary would still end up loving Bloom. Depressed, Max quits school and begins working at his father's barbershop. He later finds out that Rosemary and Bloom have split but, and returns to school and, and strikes up a friendship with Margaret. Max decides to win Rosemary back for Bloom and invites them both to a play he wrote and they end up back together. The end. Very nicely done. Yes, there's lots of uh, typical Wes Anderson, you know, beautiful little scenes, symmetry, soundtracks, between places. But uh, so there's lots going on visually and things like that. But that's the basic story. Yeah, those were all very positive adjectives to use to describe this movie, Phil. Uh, I'm glad. Well, I, I do. I do really quite like the film. No, I know. It's you know, listen. It's a film that a lot of people really like. Of course, it kind of put Wes Anderson on the map. Uh, as we discussed a few episodes ago, I'm. Not really a fan of Wes Anderson films. In fact, I really can't stand most of his movies. Uh, Rushmore <laughs> is is no different. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's certainly is something that people. But I will say, I will say in my defense, though, I did not kill anybody with a bus this time <laughs> around. So I feel like you know that's a pretty good step in the right direction for somebody who you know I've been known to take out my my yes. dislike of movies and characters. Um, you know, into my endings with a serial killer driven bus. But today I didn't do that. So <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. I'm but growing. Can, I'm growing, Phil. I can I can understand. The thing with Rushmore is the central character is an obnoxious idiot for most of the film. Correct. And he, he does make he does make it hard for you to like. Yes, and but, I definitely uh, have a thing about that. Like one of my big triggers, uh, it, whether it's right or wrong, one of my big triggers for movies is unlikable characters. When a movie is populated with too many unlikable characters, or the main characters are typically unlikable yeah. characters. I generally don't like that movie. You know, I, yeah. I, I need someone to root for in a movie, and if I don't have that, it, it takes me out of it, and I just, you know... And Wes Anderson tends to populate his films with buffoons and, you know, people who are, are either stupid or unlikable or, you know, they're just quirky for the sake of being quirky. You know, that's that's a part of yeah. my, my big yeah, problem. Yeah, lots of him. the characters are just there for the sake of the story. Right, so... But yeah, I, I, I can understand why people don't like his films, but I personally like most of them. Good. Well, good. Yeah. Then the, we should have then we should have two very different endings. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, do you want to tell us about your day after? Sure thing. Uh, so, the day after, it turns out there was a theater critic from the New York Times in the audience of the play that Max puts on in the climax of the film. Miss Petunia Periwinkle was in town visiting her family, and it turns <laughs> out her niece was a student at Rushmore, and she invited her to come see the play. Miss Periwinkle, who was in the middle of quitting smoking and was not quite in her right mind, was very impressed by the play and invites Max to come to New York, where she promises to introduce him to some Broadway producers. Max declines because his family can't afford to pay for a trip to New York after all of Max's recent legal troubles, but Bloom steps in and offers to pay for him, helping to lay the foundation for rebuilding the friendship between the pair. Oh, very good. Yeah, see, not so bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Periwinkle, is that... Uh... She a real character from something else, or no? It just seemed like yeah. the kind of thing, the kind of name yeah. that Wes Anderson oh, yeah, would yeah. name one of his characters. Did seem familiar. Yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe I don't, I don't know if there is one out there that I'm not aware of. Maybe there is, but yeah, I was just trying to think of the most pretentious name I could come up with. So <laughs> it's, it's a good name. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so uh, my day after then. Yes, I've got uh, Max's play gets great reviews in the local press. Most who saw it congratulate Max, and instead of feeding his ego, surprisingly, it makes him pause and reassess himself. Out of all the things that he does and he's involved in, he, writing, producing and directing plays makes him supremely happy and satisfied. He begins planning the next one right away and this time includes Margaret in the creative process. 
Bloom and Rose may begin a tentative courtship. Bloom knows he will have a costly divorce to sort out, but he feels happy. So that's my day after. Oh, look at us. We're just a couple of softies, aren't we? Oh, we are, aren't we? Oh, I, can, I can see yours is just going to carry on in that same vein. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> okay. Let's see what you've got for the immediate aftermath. All right. So a few weeks later, Max travels to New York, where he is introduced to Broadway theater producer Barry Bullfinch. He hears Max's pitch and agrees to put up the money for a show off-Broadway. Max is ecstatic and calls Bloom and Rosemary to share the news. Over the next few months, with Bloom's patronage, Max creates a spectacular stage show called The Pretentious Highway. <laughs> the play debuts to rave reviews and begins a long run of sold-out shows. Meanwhile, back in Texas, Bloom and Rosemary have begun dating again. Over the next few months, they get serious. When Max's play debuts and he seems completely at ease, they decide to get married, figuring that he'll be too distracted by his success to be bothered by their marriage. Hmm. They hold a small wedding, then they honeymoon in Asia and Eastern Europe, where they take a train called the Darjeeling Limited and stay at a fabulous lodging called the Grand Budapest Hotel. And that's where Very we'll nice. leave it for now. Very nice. Thank you. Yes. Look at me, I'm oh. even tying into Wes Anderson's other films. It's like a regular Wes Anderson love fest over here. It certainly is. I've not actually seen the Darjeeling Limited. Of... Yeah, neither have I. I've that's like that's on. the one Wes Anderson film that I never got around to. So it's probably the other one that I would love. Besides, you know, yeah, it's probably yeah. the best film ever, but I, I haven't seen it. <laughs> it could well be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, so my immediate aftermath, I've got Max, now fully focused on producing plays, works hard at school. He realizes that the more he knows the more he can bring to anything he produces, writes, puts together. The beginnings of a romance begin to blossom between Max and Margaret because he's he's no longer so self-centred. He's actually looking at other people and realising that, you know, other people are wonderful things. Uh, Bloom realises he will lose everything in a divorce, so he offers a huge out-of-court settlement to his wife, and he is surprised when she takes it. Bloom is not as rich as he once was, but he has enough to get by and pours himself back into work to get the money back up, and he realises he's got focus. He pulls himself back into his work, something he has not done for a while. He has his focus back and his romance with Rosemary has a lot to do with that. In her he has found a true soulmate. They talk, laugh, dance and more. Bloom has never known happiness like it and Rosemary is surprised at how strong her feelings are for this Bill Murray lookalike. <laughs> they both keep in touch with Max and many weekends involve Max and Margaret pitching new ideas to them. Max's father is also involved as he is now good friends with Bloom who visits the barbershop, who visits the barbershop each week. So that's the end of my immediate aftermath. I don't know, man. Bill Murray's hair is awfully thin to be going to the barber shop every week. Well, he might, you know, just uh, <laughs> I know, I'm just sure. chat and he things just, and right, never shave. Right, it goes for the social, you know, the social yeah. aspect of it. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, that's very true, though. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Do you want to bring us home with your long term? Sure. Here we go. All right. So the long term. After three or four years, Max's play finally comes to an end. He creates a follow-up show called "Why Must We All Be Quirky," and Barry Bullfinch <laughs> once again produces it. <laughs> Wes Anderson's going to make a film called yeah. Why Must yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when the show is another smash hit, Max begins to celebrate his success in excess and becomes addicted to cocaine. Surrounded by yes-men and hangers-on, Max becomes an insufferable bore. Well, more of one than he already was, anyway. One night, however, he runs into Margaret Yang on the streets, who he left behind when he moved to New York. She tells him how he broke her heart in high school, not because he left her to come to New York, which she understood, but because he forgot about her and never bothered to contact her again. Margaret has now become a successful fashion designer, but her speech has an effect on Max. He cleans himself up and decides to change his ways. Realizing that the New York theater party scene is too dangerous for him, he calls up Bloom and gets him to agree to finance Max's newest project, an independent film. The film, called The Overrated Auteur, 
becomes a critical <laughs> darling and launches Max's career as a filmmaker, where he specializes in making overrated, pretentious films about ridiculously quirky characters. And that's the end. Okay. It's not autobi- It's not biographical at all. There's no, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. no correlation between my ending and anybody involved with the making of that film. Okay. <laughs> it's just pure conjecture. That's all. Well, well, funny enough, in a worded quite differently, though, there are similarities in our endings. All right. Well, let's, let's see. <laughs> okay. Why don't you bring us home and give us your uh, long term? Okay. During his last year of school, Max writes a play based on his time at Rushmore and his feud with Bloom. He'd been worried about using the events in a play, but Bloom and Rose me time to go for it. Bloom pays for Max to put it on in a local theatre, and it's a smash hit. Max goes on to college and gets better and better. He writes more plays, and on the whole, they are very successful. Bloom and Rose me stay together. They never marry, but have a long, happy life together. However, they do find out that Bloom's two sons were actually serial killers who end up getting killed in a police shootout. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while since we've had a, know, a serial yeah. killer from you. Nice. Well, they were absolutely idiots. It seemed like they'd do something like That's that. That's like the ultimate yeah. callback, man. That goes all the way back to episode one when you first started. I know, well, the whole... you know, you've got to, I'm doing a slow burn. No, I like it. I like it. you got to keep people con- guessing. You know, if you do it too yeah. often, it's, you know, it's just, it loses the, the magic. Thank you. Uh, Max and Maggie stay together. They have a long, successful career as writing and producing partners. Many are adapted into films, with the young director by the name of Wes Anderson being one of Max's biggest fans. Nice. Turning them into many stylish movies featuring some big names. And that's the end. Ah, look at that. So, yeah, those were very similar endings, actually. Mm -hmm. That's kind of unusual for us. We tend to go in different directions. I mean, I didn't put the serial killers in, of course, but, you know. I like it. I just I was going to have it where they were killing people, you know, a bit earlier on, you know. Oh, right, right. But I thought, no, I'll just bring it on them. I I like that. I like that. Come on. Out of left field. Whereas Wes Anderson just kills people with boredom. (laughs) Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) Sorry about that. That was a low blow. All right, terrific. Well, that's going to be our endings for uh, our very similar endings this time for Rushmore. Phil, do you have any um, exciting trivia to share about the film? Any quirky, quirky trivia? Quirky trivia. Okay, uh, trivia. Uh, Bill Murray loved the script and said he would have done it for free, uh, but he, he didn't. He got paid. Right. Uh, when Dis- Disney denied a helicopter scene that would have cost $75,000, Murray ended up giving uh, Wes Anderson a blank check to cover it, which was very nice of him. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I like this one. Murray found the actors playing his sons very annoying. So this, <laughs> their scenes were improvised with Murray throwing those insults at them. Everything he was saying, uh, he just he just let his hate out. So uh, I quite that, like that, that as well. Seems very Bill Murray esque. Yes, yes. Uh, the screenplay was written long before Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson's debut, Bottle Rocket, in 1996. So that's that was quite interesting. So I think it was maybe written before Bottle Rocket. That's interesting because I, mm. I actually like Bottle Rocket. So I would mm. think that you know that Rushmore would have come about afterwards because it sort of yeah. follows suit with all the rest of Wes Anderson's films that I hate. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know how much of this whether it was a fully formed script or whether right, right. It's just. Might have just been knocking around the idea, sure, might not Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, and it was also the film debut of Alexis Bledel, who was in oh, Gilmore Girls. Right, right. I didn't realize that. She's one of the students in the Rushmore Academy. Very cool. And that's uh, Rushmore. Excellent. All righty. Well, then why don't we move along then from uh, quirky comedy to, uh, well, Michael Bay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which means slow motion, explosions, and Sean Connery. I will not try and do a Sean Connery impression because... That will end badly. Oh, my friend Pete does a really good Sean Connery impression, but he's not here. Darn it, Pete. Where are you when we need you? <laughs> we'll have to have a talk with Pete. So then why don't we dive right into The Rock, Phil, shall we? Yes, one of Michael Bay's good films. <laughs> yeah, once upon a time. I consider mm. myself a big Michael Bay fan when he had just had a few a few films under his belt that I really liked. But, yeah, you know, that's all changed. Yes. So. Sadly. 
Yeah, what do you Because that's the thing. It just, like with the Rock and Bad Boys, they work well. Oh, they're great. I love them both. Then it starts to go downhill a little slowly, but then it goes faster and faster. Yeah. Anyway, on to happier yeah. topics. Let's you talk can hear about... The, you can hear the disappointments in our voices. <laughs> exactly. All right. So The Rock, 1996, directed by Michael Bay, starring, deep breath, Nicolas Cage, Sean Connery, Ed Harris, Michael Bean, Tony Todd, David Morse, William Forsyth, Vanessa Marcel, Claire Forlani, and John C. McGinley. That's a pretty good cast. It's an amazing cast. So, all right. Here's, it's here's just, yeah. There's so many, so many recognizable faces, yeah. and names, and yep. just all of them are spot on. Oh, Great yeah. casting for sure. Okay, here we go. A group of rogue soldiers, led by General Hummel, played by Ed Harris, and Major Baxter, played by David Morse, steal a stockpile of nerve gas missiles. Then they take control of Alcatraz Island and 83 civilian tourists who are visiting it. Hummel threatens to launch the missiles at San Francisco unless he's paid $100 million that he wants to disperse to the families of covert ops soldiers whose deaths were not acknowledged by the U.S. government and whose families were not compensated. The FBI calls on John Mason, played by Sean Connery, a prisoner who's the only person to escape from Alcatraz in the 1960s. He's teamed up with Stanley Goodspeed, played by Nicolas Cage, a chemical weapons specialist. Mason leads Goodspeed and a team of SEALs to Alcatraz, but all the SEALs are killed in an ambush by General Hummel's men. Mason and Goodspeed disable most of the rockets. However, they're soon captured. We learn that Mason was imprisoned for coming into possession of a U.S. microfilm with major state secrets. Meanwhile, the U.S. plans to launch an airstrike on Alcatraz that will destroy the gas, but also kill everyone on the island. And that's bad news. When the <laughs> <laughs> Just a little commentary there. You know. Yeah, I'd use that. Good nerve gas. Yeah. What do you do? What are you going to do, you know? When the deadline for the ransom passes, Hummel detonates one of the rockets over the sea, revealing that it was a bluff and he wasn't actually planning on killing innocent civilians. His men, Darrow and Fry, played by Tony Todd and some actor I've never heard of, aren't <laughs> happy about this, and, and they kill him in return. Goodspeed manages to kill them and disable the last bomb. He waves off the approaching jets, but one of them gets a bomb off. Mason saves Goodspeed after he's thrown into the ocean. Goodspeed then tells his superiors that Mason died in the explosion. Then he finds the microfilm that Mason gave him the location of and learns that it includes decades of secrets on it, including who killed JFK. Oh. <laughs> which, who killed JFK? Which may or may not come into play in our endings. Ah. You never know. Interesting, Mr. Bond. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't in mine. I don't know why I said that. I, mean, I guess maybe I'm just guessing that it will in yours, but I actually didn't. Uh, I didn't follow so up on that at all. So no, it gets mentioned. All right. But... Oh, there we go. All right. So Phil, why don't you start things off? Take us into your day after. So my day after, uh, Goodspeed and Carla, they've been traveling across the U.S., which we see at the end of the film when they get the microphone from the uh, the church. Uh, they've been reading through all the files on the microphone, and as well as huge revelations such as JFK, they find out more about Mason because the CIA had been keeping tabs on him. Turns out he was the first in a top-secret special forces unit in Great Britain and helped foil the plots of various criminals, such as Sir Hugo Drax, Ulrich Goldfinger, and Dr. Julius Snow. Very nice. They're just a few of the ones mentioned. Very nice. The unit carried on after Mason's disappearance years before, but his code name continued to add to the myth. Meanwhile, Mason has disappeared. Hmm. Wait, let me, let me see. I'm trying to see if I can figure out what, what the code name was, though. Was it... Well, I'm, I'm leaving some, some very subtle clues. <laughs> okay, all right. So, you know, you're going to have to work it out. Uh, yeah. Was it, I thought maybe it was Agent 99. Ah, oh, so close. So close. All right. Next time, I'll try harder. <laughs> okay, what would be... 
What have you got for your day after, Mike? All right. Well, John Mason goes into hiding, and he needs to create an alias to remain undercover. So he picks what he thinks is a fairly innocuous American name, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> he contacts Stanley and gives him the location of a Dropbox where he can leave a message if he ever needs to reach him. Not, you know, Dropbox, the online storage system, because <laughs> that, that didn't exist in 1996. But yeah, that's true. <laughs> Meanwhile, Stanley returns to his lab as a chemical weapons specialist. When he discovers a plot amongst the higher-ups to use a new chemical weapon that Stanley helped create in a third-world nation to try and jumpstart a conflict that will have positive political repercussions for the U.S. Man, that made a lot more sense when I wrote it. No, it <laughs> It's all right. It makes sense. Just trying to say it all out loud was kind of yeah. a mouthful. But it's, it's it's probably not that far-fetched. No, it probably isn't. So plot, <laughs> higher-ups, start a war. That leads to good things for the U.S. That's the, yeah. the boil down of it. Uh, yeah. He reaches out to Mason for help in stopping them. Then a car explodes in slow motion. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it for now. <laughs> okay. How about your immediate aftermath, Phil? Okay. Uh, upon returning to San Francisco, Goodspeed and Carla plan on how they could get the secrets out to the general population. But they also have a big discussion about whether they actually should. While out getting coffee, Goodspeed pauses, as if he's waiting for someone to go round him in slow motion, but it never actually does. <laughs> but he's approached by a blonde man with piercing blue eyes. The man says his name is James and needs Goodspeed's help to find Mason. He had contacted James, but had not shown up at the meet point. Goodspeed, obviously, is very wary about this and needs more proof. James takes him to a meeting nearby. There he meets the former agents who took on the responsibilities of Mason once he disappeared. James is the most recent, but Goodspeed is introduced to George, Roger, Tim and Pierce. David <laughs> and Barry had sadly passed away some years before. <laughs> they knew Goodspeed had the, has the microfilm and so they are more willing to reveal other secrets to him. They've always had some autonomy in their missions and knew Mason was innocent. When they found out he was still alive, they wanted to help him. They've since found out that Mason's daughter has also disappeared. Fearing the worst, they need Goodspeed as he was the last to see Mason. He tells him everything he knows, and a plan is developed. Mm. So that's uh, that's my immediate aftermath. What have you got for yours? All right. Well, you know, this, these could end up being a similar endings once again. We'll see what yeah. happens. Um, yeah. All right. So, uh, okay, so immediate aftermath. So Mason gets the message from Goodspeed and realizes that time is short and he's going to need help. So he puts together a team. He reaches out through the covert <laughs> operations community and organizes a crack team of some of the best covert ops people around. Ethan Hunt, who's known for accomplishing impossible missions. Jack Ryan, who specializes in intelligence. Laura Croft, a British woman who's known for being able to find anything. Evelyn Salt, a former CIA agent who could be Laura Croft's twin sister. <laughs> Frank Moses, a former American black ops agent known as Red for some reason, even though he doesn't have any hair. <laughs> Former CIA agent Brian Mills, who's a bit of a wild card because people close to him keep getting taken. <laughs> Jason Bourne, a mysterious and deadly assassin. And some British chap named James Bond, who looks awfully familiar to Mason, but he can't put his finger on quite why he looks so familiar. Shakshi. <laughs> yeah, is he a, he's very Shakshi. Shakshi. <laughs> as soon as the team gathers in San Francisco, a cable car outside their building explodes in slow motion. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it for now. Well, I want to see a film with all of those agents in. Could you imagine that? Oh, yeah, it'd be it'd fantastic. Be right, well, not, It should be the Expendables. They'll be the Unstoppables. The Unstoppables, right. And it would only yeah. have a $700 million budget to pay for all those yeah, salaries. Yeah. Although you could have some of them doing dual roles, like Angelina Jolie. So yeah. That's yeah. like a bargain. <laughs> all right, Phil, why don't you bring Very us good. home and, uh, and deliver the long term? Okay, they discover that Mason was taken by an organization called the Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. I'm sure there's an acronym for that, but I can't think of it. <laughs> I'm sure. They wanted Mason for his knowledge and the microfilms. They could use it to blackmail governments and individuals. Goodspeed travels with James around the globe, 
where they get involved in fights, car chases, skiing, more fights, lots of booze, a bit of betting in casinos, but they eventually track down Mason and Jade. That's uh, Mason's daughter. Right. After a hard-won battle, they save, save the pair, but James is mortally wounded. Once Jade is safe, Mason meets up with the other former agents, and, they, uh, and the funeral of James takes place, and they're all very upset. However, they decide that Goodspeed would be the next agent in the line, as they like the double O in his name. Goodspeed, at first unwilling, realises it is for the greater good, and he will be a new, different type of bond. Mm-hmm. And that's my after the ending. Which I like very much, except for one thing. What's that? The the idea in my head of Nicolas Cage playing James Bond is, is quite terrifying. That's what I think. <laughs> same for me. That's why I thought it works. No, I, I mean, I like it. I'm just saying. Could like, you imagine know. him in a James Bond film? Right. That's Bond. Oh, Shaken, okay. not stirred. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hey, that was a good one. I hey, like that. Thank you. Ah, look at that one. One impression out of the twenty we've done. That's so, yeah. well. You've had a couple of decent ones too, but yeah, yeah that's you. my that's my Nicholas Cage there. <laughs> I've never done tried doing Nicholas Cage. I always you have to keep it short though. I always when he was being talked about for being Superman, all I could ever think of was like he's gonna be Superman. He's just gonna be like, well, Lois. That would be his whole his whole <laughs> version brilliant. of Superman, which I just couldn't I couldn't wrap my brain around. So I'm glad that. Oh, never... you, you should do that. You should do a Nicholas Cage. As Superman, little sketch. <laughs> yeah, maybe one of these brilliant. days. Yeah. Not today, though. I just a little no, sampling just then. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so do you want to bring things home with your long term? Sure thing. All right. So dodging explosions left and right, Mason and his team go into action. With Stanley's help, they break into the highly secured chemical weapons lab. Brian Mills starts things off by phone calling in a threat to another nearby secure location, drawing some of the chem lab security personnel away. Jason Bourne provides... I keep wanting to do... What's his name on the phone? Like, you know, I have a very particular set of skills. Yeah. You know, but I don't know how to work it in exactly right, so... You should have, could have had it where he doesn't actually show up. He just keeps calling into all of them saying, I'm, I'm on the way. The That's bus awesome. has stopped, but I'm having a word with the driver because I have a particular set of skills. That's right. If he does not deliver me, I will find him and I will yeah. kill him. Right. You don't know me, but you need to know that. You do a good Liam Neeson, though, actually. Thank you. I didn't realize until just now. <laughs> all right. Jason Bourne provides sniper cover from the building across the street. Ethan Hunt goes into the ductwork to reach the inner layers of the secured facility. Jack Ryan is in a disguised electronic surveillance truck outside, relaying info to the team. Bond goes undercover as an army general, while Evelyn Salt lures away the security team and disables them. Frank Moses works the perimeter, while Laura Croft coordinates with Ethan to unlock the security measures and gain access to the inner core of the facility. This is all, see, you got to, like, it's like an action movie, so you got to be picturing yeah, in your head, that. like, you know, it's, it's things are heating up, they're getting exciting now. Yeah, I love those scenes when they like they're talking about the plan and then it keeps cutting with them actually doing the plan. Right, right, yeah, that's that great, stuff. isn't it? Yeah. Well, picture that in your head while I'm reading this. I'm picturing it. I'm picturing it. All right, and you know what? It shocks you. <laughs> <laughs> when they finally reach the innermost laboratory, a place even Stanley has never had access to, they find that it's not a chemical the higher ups had planned to unleash. It's a new breed of super soldier called Adam. 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 Yeah, I randomly threw in a callback to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, of course. That's yeah. out of wow. nowhere. Just, Jesus Christ. Just that's because. Going back, yeah. Well, there awesome. you go. I was about to say it's a new breed of super soldier called Adam who looks kind of like a robot zombie. That might have clued you oh, a yeah, little yeah. more. Oh, yeah. What about it then? Yeah, you know. They debate whether or not they should free him, but his programming kicks in and he starts fighting the team. None of them are able to defeat him, so Stanley calls the team out of the room and seals it releasing the pre-programmed countermeasures that flood the room with a cocktail of poisonous gases that are the only thing that can stop the super soldier. 
As the team runs out of the building, the entire facility starts to self-destruct in an orgy of slow-motion explosions, each one bigger than the last. They finally emerge, bruised and bloodied, but intact. The day has been saved once again. Very good. And there you go. Thank you. Okay, so that's our endings for The Rock. Uh, Phil, do you have any explosive trivia to share with us? Kaboom. Nice. (laughs) You you don't know me, but I will find you, and I will hunt you down. Okay, yes. And I will deliver trivia to you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a man of particular set of skills. No skills are trivia. <laughs> Sean Connery didn't want to travel to Alcatraz every day, so they built him a cabin on the island. Really? Yeah, apparently. That's, yeah. that's interesting. That's awesome. I don't uh, know that I'd want to sleep on Alcatraz by myself. No, no, but, you know, if, if Sean Connery was there. Right. Uh, prem- the premiere was also held on Alcatraz. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was offered the role of Mason, but the script was unfinished and he turned it down. And apparently he was also considered for good speed at one point. Interesting. Yeah, uh, Stanley Anderson played the president in the film. And he also played the president in Armageddon. Huh. That's so, kind of a cool tie-in. I know. I think he was uncredited in uh, The Rock. But you could say the two films are related because of that. Absolutely. Uh, and the average shot length for the film was 2.6 seconds. That's actually kind of fascinating to me because mm. the average sh- uh, shot length for films nowadays, I think, is something like 1.5 seconds. Yeah. So I think, you know, Michael Bay is is kind of... I guess known for you know this quick cut editing where you can't tell what's going on, but it shows that in some of his earlier films it wasn't like that as much. In fact, I think I you know one of the things that I loved about him was his use of slow motion in his early yeah. films because he always made really great cinematic decisions with his use of slow motion, and then he sort of became known for it. But if you actually if you watch like the first Transformers movie. Part of the problem with it is that there is no slow motion in it at all. And that's a film that could have benefited from it because you would have been able to see what was happening more. And instead yeah, it was just like yeah. this orgy of metal, you know, flying around the screen. So um, yeah, the only the only few there's only I think little bits of slow motion when Optimus Prime is like doing a dive or something like that. Right. But it's very, very limited compared to yeah, what he had yeah. done in some of his earlier films. And I think that it actually would have benefited from it. But it is interesting to think that, you know, that two point six seconds is actually a pretty long time for an average shot length for yeah. especially for a Michael Bay film. Well, it's like with The Rock and his earlier stuff, they're a lot more coherent than his later films. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, he, he definitely started off and was doing a very particular thing very well, and then he sort of just took it too far. You know, he overstylized, yeah, yeah. and yeah. now it's just a mess. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our endings for The Rock and Rushmore. If you have thoughts on our endings or you'd like to share your own, we would love to hear them. We'll tell you how you can reach us in just a little bit. But for now, let's move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature for the week. Phil, why don't dun, you tell dun, 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 dun. Is that your way of hinting at me that I need to find some, some mini feature music? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, that was the mini feature music. Oh, so we yeah. just use that every week? I'm just going to play it again. It's on tape. Uh, okay, great. Dun, 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 dun. It, is, it is awe-inspiring, actually. It is. It's like, you know, something out of Cecil B. DeMille film. Oh, for sure, for sure. John, <laughs> John Williams, you know. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's got John it's Williams. It's up there, it's up there. I can hear the the Williams influence for sure. All right, especially in that second note. Oh yeah, yeah, without a (laughs) doubt. So Phil, why don't you fill people in on our mini feature for the week? Uh, Well, what was it? I was watching Jack Reacher uh, over the weekend because I enjoyed it the first time I'd seen it. Realized it was the only time I'd seen it. Then I was going through Netflix, and you know when you're going, you think you're going to spend the whole night just flicking through Netflix and can't decide anything. But then I saw Jack Reacher and went, I've not seen that in a while. I'll watch it again. And I I really enjoyed it, probably more this time than the first time. But as we all know, Jack Reacher in the books is like six foot seven or whatever. He's built like a wall. He's huge. So he's like a big presence physically as well as 
his skills and mindset. But they've got Tom Cruise, who is known for being a little bit short. Sorry, Tom. We still but, you know, we still love you, Tom. Yeah. Maybe not the Scientology, but, you know, <laughs> right. what can you do? Right. But to each, each his own. But, yeah, anyway, but he, he does he does a good thing as Reacher. He brings the mental side of things and everything like that, but he doesn't have doesn't have the size. So what would, I was thinking, what other films have had casting where initially you thought it was going to be bad, but it ends up working out either okay or really well? And this one's called Bad Casting Turn Good. Uh, yeah, should be fun. So uh, you want to start or you want me to start, Phil? Uh, well, you throw one at me and I'll throw one back. All right, that sounds good. So my first choice is Channing Tatum in 21 Jump Street. And here's why. Mm-hmm. Because at the time when that movie came out, he was mostly known for the Step Up movies. Yeah. And uh, what else had he done at that point? Very little. I think he had one other fairly big film under his under his belt, but it wasn't a comedy. He hadn't done any comedy at that point. And so he's kind of, you know, he's known for being good looking, kind of, you know, muscle bound. He can dance real well. But, you know, would he be any good in a comedy? And I, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite comedies of the past decade. But I thought he is hysterically funny in it. The part where he's yeah. like... Well, I can't say it, but he's like, F science, you know. And then oh, he's like, I loved, I just, that's what yeah, I was going to say. He's in the band room and he's flying yeah. through and he's falling everywhere. I just thought he was so funny in that movie. And he's such a great job of, of putting in the physical comedy, but also his line readings. Like he just really has a great knack for, for comedic yeah. talent. But I just, you know, obviously the, the, the movie was very different from the TV show in terms of tone and everything. So it was sort of kind of a big unknown. Uh, but yeah. I thought he was great in it. And, and I, do, I do really love that movie. So that was one of my surprise casting choices there. Oh, that's a good one as well, because you're right. It sort of played along with the fact he's a big action star. Right. And then totally subverted it, didn't it? And he, but he's, as you say, he's brilliant in, in things. Well, just watching uh, Hail Caesar over the weekend as well. Oh, yeah. His dance number big, in there. The is... big dance center. Oh, it's so which, good. Uh, yeah, very well done. And uh, yeah, he's a, he's a brilliant actor. Yep, yep. I like him okay. very much. All right, so what do you got? Yeah, I've got Heath Ledger as the Joker in The Dark Knight. Oh, great choice. Yes, because he'd been... Mainly in comedies, romantic comedies, things like that, such as A Knight's Tale and Ten Things I Hate About You. And when it was announced he was going to be the Joker, there was the usual internet going, what the heck are you doing? He's rubbish. He's never going to do it. And as we all know, he did amazing work yeah. as the Joker. And he won the Oscar, sadly, posthumously. But uh, yeah, he was uh, an excellent choice and it worked so well. It did indeed. And ju- just for the record, I will say A Knight's Tale and Ten Things I Hate About You, both movies we should do in future episodes, are two of yes, my favorites. Yeah. I love I both like of those them, movies. Yeah. So yeah. I was actually excited when he got cast as the Joker yeah. because I, you know, especially Knight's Tale, I just he's so good in that and we you know, I thought he's he's a talented guy, so I had a feeling he would do well with it, but yeah. he really blew away I think even people even people who who I think expected him to do well were still blown away by what he did with the role. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's also I was going to I was going to go with Michael Keaton as Batman as well. You know, that was my that was on my list at first also, but yeah. I thought it was too obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think this will be the kind of the honor, the, the, the in memoriam of Michael Keaton as Batman. We know that everyone knows that's, you know, that's sort of the obvious choice. So we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll leave him off our lists. <laughs> okay, so what have you got for the second one? All right, so my second one is uh, kind of, probably a, 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 I don't know, slightly controversial choice, and it is Army Hammer as the Lone Ranger in The Lone mm-hmm. Ranger. And yeah. the reason I picked him for that is, A, he'd really only been in one major film to that point, and that was The Social Network, where he played the, the Winklevoss twins, and it was a yes. very kind of, yeah. you know, everyday person sort of role. It wasn't anything, you know, too much heavy lifting. But then he gets cast in this huge, big-budget film. Uh, he's carrying it on his back as the as the title character, and, you know, nobody knew if he'd be able to pull it off or not. Now, a lot of people would argue that he didn't, or that because the film flopped, 
that he failed. But I actually really love that movie. I think it's incredibly underrated. I, I, did, I thought it was a great film. Yeah. It was a really good film. It is. It's really funny and, and it's very fun, a lot of adventure. It's just that kind of old-fashioned, just, you know, good time kind of, you know, Wild West adventure. And, and I just thought he really brought a lot to it. His, his sort of slightly clueless but still heroic portrayal of the Lone Ranger, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah. uh, so I think he, he lived up to the task. I think he delivered exactly what the movie wanted and needed, and it's just a shame that more people didn't embrace it. Yeah, and I would like to have seen some more films with him as the Lone Ranger. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Phil, what about your second choice then? Okay, I'm going to go way back and go with Vivian Lee uh, from Gone with the Wind. Wow, interesting choice. Because she was a British actress playing a famous Southern Belle. Oh, yeah, I didn't really think about that. Fans wrote many letters at the time saying it was an insult to Southern women and a direct affront to the men who wore the grey. As we know, it turned out very well indeed. Yes, but it did. At the time, there was no internet, but there was lots of people writing letters and they really didn't want her to be in the film. Well, you got to be really worked up about a movie to take the time to write a letter by hand yeah, and put it yeah. in an envelope and mail it and, and address it and stamp it and mail it. Like So clearly people were very, very passionate about it. But like you said, it obviously worked out well in the end. Yeah. Yeah, and as we were doing, uh, mentioned James Bond, both of us in the last thing, we can also say Daniel Craig was a... Uh, yeah, I thought about he, him too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Short blonde and with a kind of weird looking face. But, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's worked out okay things. too though. Yeah, he's done yeah, all right. Yeah. He's done all right. If anybody's got some other examples of bad casting turn good, you can uh, please let us know and we'll mention them in a future episode. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Meanwhile, let's move on then to our top 10 films of 1945. And you know what I, I realized, Phil? I haven't said the name of this feature in a really long time. So it's our oh, yeah. 100 years of movies in 100 episodes, which is every week we pick a year and we share our top 10 films from that year. I know it's fairly self-explanatory, but just in case you're a new listener, you're not wondering why we're randomly talking about 1945. We pick a different year every week. All right, Phil, why don't you climb into that time machine of yours and take us back to 1945? Okay, 1945, it was the end of World War II. Uh, the Prime Minister was Winston Churchill, followed by Clement Attlee. And over in the US, the President was Franklin D. Roosevelt, followed by Harry S. Truman. There was, obviously, there's still some events happening from the war. Uh, and involved One of them was the USS Indianapolis being hit by a torpedo and sinking, where sadly many of the, the, uh, the people who fell into the ocean were picked off by sharks and made famous in that uh, brilliant monologue in Jaws. Arthur C. Clarke suggests the idea for geosynchronous communication satellites back in 1945. I know, right? He was a smart guy. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Mongolians vote for independence from China. Uh, Astrid Lindgren's Pippi Longstocking book is published. Uh, General Patton dies from injuries caused by a car accident. So he gets through World War II and then gets in a car crash and dies. Seriously? Yeah. What it's the just, heck? I know. And uh, it was the first appearance of Casper the Friendly Ghost. And also, the first, 1945, had the first feature-length anime. It was called Mamatoro, the Holy Soldier of the Sea, uh, directed by Mitsuyo Sio, which mm. I've never seen. And we also had some, some good births. Uh, we had Stephen Stills, Rod Stewart, Tom Selleck, Bob Marley, Mia Farrow, Bubba Smith, Dirk Benedict, Arthur Lee, Eric Clapton, Pete Townsend, Debbie Harry, Bert Ward, Helen Mirren, Henry Winkler, John Lithgow, Neil Young, Lemmy, and Ernie Hudson. And my mom. And your mom. Oh, so, happy birthday. I'm sure she's going to be thrilled that I put that out there, you know, because she doesn't like people to know her age. But happy birthday, mom. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it's one of these things. I didn't realize that John Lithgow, uh, you know, was the same age as Rod Stewart and things like that. Tom Selleck as well. It's just. Yep, yep. And Debbie Harry's the same age as Helen Mirren. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. 
Craziness. Bizarre. All right. But yeah, that's 1945. Excellent. Uh, do you want to give us your number 10? Sure. In the oh. top 10 for 1945. I will start things off. And my number 10 is Captain Kidd, starring Charles Lawton. It is a pirate movie. And I probably last saw Hurrah! it when I was... <laughs> Was that your pirate noise? No, it was a pirate actually walked in. <laughs> just, did, just did that. He's gone though now. It sounded, I'm not going to lie, sounded a little more like a barnyard animal. Well, funnily enough, <laughs> funny should mention that. <laughs> One of those walk in too? Yeah. Okay. The two together. Yeah, I see. All right. Oh, they're back again. Hurrah. <laughs> oh, that's lame, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's something. <laughs> Well, my number 10 is Captain Kidd, starring Charles Lawton. And I have to say, the last time I saw this movie is when I was a kid. But I do have fond memories of it. I loved pirate movies when I was a kid. This is one of the ones that stuck out in my mind. And so it eked its way onto my list. Very good. Uh, my number 10. It was directed by Alan Dwan. And it starred, starred Dennis O'Keefe and Helen Walker. And as we all know, it also was made in 19... What year was it? 1985. Walter Hill directed it with Richard Pryor as the film. It's the one where a man will inherit an obscene amount of money, but he has to spend an obscene amount of money in, in like a, a month uh, from to get it, but he can't tell anyone. It's a great version of it. It's all based on a book by George Barr McCutcheon, and it's actually had quite a few uh, versions over the years. One of them was in 1914 by Cecil B. DeMille, uh, based on the play... And it's considered a lost film. Hmm. Altogether, there's been one, two, eleven versions of it over the years. Wow, I had no idea. I've only seen the yeah. Richard Pryor version. Yeah, I mean, well, I've seen Richard Pryor on this one, and it was a, a nice concept when I saw it back way back, and it's uh, it works well. We know the story, but it's a good good little film. Very cool. Yep. All right, well, my number nine is The Three Caballeros. It is sort of an oddball of a Disney film, but I guess I've just figured out that if, if a Disney film came out that year, chances are good it's going to end up somewhere on my list because I, I am a pretty big Disney fan. So Three Caballeros isn't one of the best Disney films. It's sort of a travelogue, if you will. It's a mix of animation and live action. It sort of uh, talks about South America. It was made as sort of a peace offering from Disney to South America. Um, yeah. But it's got Donald Duck in it. It's got some fun segments in it. And uh, it's just, like I said, sort of a curiosity. So for me, uh, I have seen it. I do have an affinity for it. So uh, like Captain Kidd, it kind of ekes onto my list up at the top there. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's one of the ones of Disney films I've never actually seen. I've been aware of it, but never never managed to track hold of a copy to watch it. You know, I, I don't know that you really... I think, honestly, it's it's a nostalgia pick for me. I think if you see it for the first time as an adult, I don't know that it's going to win you over. Because, again, yeah, part, true, portions yeah. of it are about, like, hey, let's visit Brazil and see what it's like to live in Brazil. And it's very <laughs> dated. You know, it's a, it's a documentary about Brazil in the 40s. I mean, you know... Yeah, uh, yeah. It, but again, it, it's a nostalgia pick for me. It's a movie that I enjoyed when I was a kid. And so, you know, but, but I don't know that I'm going to say you need to rush out and watch it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, okay, well, my number nine is And Then There Were None. It was uh, been one, another one which has had many adaptations, but it's an Agatha Christie story uh, directed by Rene Clare, starring Barry Fitzgerald, Walter Houston, and June Dupre, amongst others. It's uh, a group of people brought to a mansion where they're then accused of a crime, and then they get picked off one by one. Uh, and I think it's been remade many times, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's Sabotage is one of the most recent ones uh, which was that film was originally called Ten, and it's a it's a great murder mystery, and it's worth a watch. It is. That's an excellent pick. I, I yeah. will say that saying that Sabotage was based on this it hurts my heart a little bit. But I know. I, know. <laughs> I mean, it's very loosely based, obviously. Yeah. In the yeah, loosest but terms, uh, but still, it's it, it is good though when you do take 
a basic idea for thing and use it, but unfortunately it didn't turn out the best in sabotage. No, definitely not. Yeah. All right. Well, my number eight is They Were Expendable, starring John Wayne and directed by John Ford, uh, one of the few non-Western pairings between John Wayne and John Ford. It's an interesting film for me. It's a good war movie. It's about a PT boat and its crew. And John Wayne actually is a supporting role. He's not the lead actor in yeah. it. Um, and I like the movie very much, but it's it's awfully long. It's two hours and 16 minutes, and I feel like it could have cut out about 40 minutes of that pretty easily. But that said... Some of the battle sequences in it are really spectacular, especially considering this is 1945 and there were no real special effects to be used. I mean, there there are mm-hmm. some special effects, but mostly it's actual boats out on the water with, you know, I don't want to say actual explosions, but, you know, it's not CGI. It's, it's explosions made through practical special effects. And there's, you know, boats blowing up and they're sinking ships and there's missiles firing. And, and it's, you know, some of the action scenes are just really, really impressive, especially when you consider when the film was made. So... That's my number eight. Cool. I don't. I think I've got vague recollections of seeing it, but I couldn't remember well enough to include it on the list. Sure, sure. But yeah, I like stuff like that. Okay, my number eight is The Lost Weekend, directed by Billy Wilder and starring Ray Milan and Jane Wyman. And it's a powerhouse performance from Ray. Uh, he's playing an alcoholic who goes back on the booze after being on the wagon for 10 days, and it's following following his bender, basically, for the, the next few days. And it's supremely well acted it's depressing it's a few few funny moments as often isn't there in the darkest times people have but it's uh, it's well worth a watch a uh, great film. Excellent choice. All right, well, my number seven is Spellbound, starring Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman and directed by the great Alfred Hitchcock. Now, normally an Alfred Hitchcock movie would probably be in my top one, top two films. But yeah. Spellbound is not one of my favorites of his, to be honest with you. Um, like They Were Expendable, it's awfully long. It's just about two hours. and um, But it's really talky. It's kind of a psychological drama. Yeah. And... Yeah. Um, you know, with the exception of like the last fifteen minutes of the film, which does feature a very cool psychedelic vision that was did that was designed by Salvador Dali, um, with the exception of the last fifteen minutes or so of the film, it doesn't really feel like Hitchcock. It feels like kind of a run of the mill fifties, you know, forties or fifties sort of you know drama. Um, yeah. So it's not one of my favorite Hitchcock films, but Ingrid Bergman is terrific in it. Gregory Peck is terrific in it. It's still a good film. It's just not as high up on my list as many other Hitchcock films would be. Well. Funnily enough, my number seven is also <laughs> yes. spellbound. All right. Yes. Very good. I have pretty much the same reasons as you. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a good film, but it's it's a Hitchcock film, and you expect something a bit a bit better. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I mean, you know, you just when you watch a Hitchcock film, you sort of expect to you know to just get wrapped up in you know in, and how great yeah. it is. And this is it's it's good, it's solid, but that's all it is, you know. Yeah, but uh, I just say the uh, the dream sequence by Dolly is uh, is very good. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes. All right. Well, my number six is The Picture of Dorian Gray, starring George Sanders, Herd Hatfield, and Angela Lansbury. Picture, the Picture of Dorian Gray is a classic story. Uh, Oscar Wilde, I believe, yeah. wrote the original. Yeah. And this is one of, one of again, a, kind of a theme, one of many film adaptations of it. But it is the one that I have seen, and it is sort of the classic. I think this is the one most people refer to when they think of it on film. And it's just a cool story done justice by a really good film adaptation. Yeah. Totally agree. It's funny, isn't it? There are some certain films or work, books or plays that can get remade again and again and again and nobody complains. And yet yep. you have like one film or something which as soon as there's mention of a remake, people are going, oh, my God, how dare they? <laughs> right, it's weird, right. isn't it, how some, some things, some properties, it's okay to remake it. Yeah. And yeah I don't, know what, I don't yeah. know what the difference is, you know, yeah. but but it is interesting. It's weird. For sure. 
Yeah. All right. How about your number six, Phil? Yeah, my number six is Dead of Night. It's a British anthology horror film from Ealing Studios. Uh, it's got a number of different stories as they do, lots of different actors. Uh, but it's got a great framing device where a man arrives at a house saying he's had terrible nightmares and it's everything that's he's that goes on in the house has happened before and he starts telling people that this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And then we have different stories. And one of them involves Michael, Redgra- Michael Redgrave and a ventriloquist dummy. And whenever there's a ventriloquist dummy in a horror film, it always creeps me out. And uh, I do like those anthology f- films where there's no d- different stories and things when it all gets tied in together. And this is a... Quite an enjoyable one. Very cool. I have yeah. not seen that one, but yeah, I it's definitely worth, it's worth it's, it well, it's, it's a bit ropey in places, but it's uh, it's worth a watch. It does have sure. a few scares, but it's uh, it's a good one. Yeah, I agree with you, man. Ventriloquist yeah. dummies are creepy, hands yeah. down. Even yeah. when they're not in a horror film, I find them creepy. Yeah, they are. So. Well, well, Hannah recently watched uh, Goosebumps, and she was telling me all about the scary ventriloquist dummy in it, and I was going, "Oh, I know. There's some films <laughs> I can show you when you're older." Right, right, exactly. <laughs> What's that all one right. with uh, Anthony Hopkins? Magic. Yeah, yeah. That won't creep me out. Right, right. So go on, what have you got for your number five? All right, my number five is The Naughty 90s, starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. And uh, it's it's uh, it's a great comedy starring the two of them, and it also features what is considered by most people the definitive filmed version of the Who's on First routine, if you will. And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know... I don't think I've seen the whole movie probably in a very long time, but you know, who's on first to me is still one of the greatest comedy bits of all time. And uh, this is, you know, it still holds up as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's amazing. Even if you don't follow baseball, it doesn't matter. It's just brilliant. And this one, like I said, is one of the, the best filmed versions of it. Uh, So there you go. That's my pick. Yeah. Well, I love the sketch, but I love that, that bit, but the film didn't like the film enough to put it on the top 10. Fair enough. I think I probably put it on mostly because of who's on first, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But I remember there was a, an episode of Animaniacs where there was some crotchety squirrel character, and she, they were some, I think she was at Woodstock, and they did a riff on the whole sketch, and you got to talking about who's on stage, the band, uh, and just doing all that <laughs> stuff, and it was really right. good. It's that's probably funny. on YouTube somewhere. But that yeah, was, yeah, uh, yeah. That's it was funny. good how they, it was nice to take that sketch, but make it different. Right, right. Good, yeah. Very cool. Uh, okay, okay, my number five is The Thin Man Goes Home. Directed by Richard Thorpe, and it stars William Powell and Myrna Loy. And it was the fifth of the six, six Thin Man films that got made. And uh, we see Nick and Noah going on a holiday, and surprise, surprise, they get involved in a murder. I always like the Thin Man films. I just love the charm and the banter between uh, Nick and Noah, the characters. And also they've got the cute little dog as well doing stuff. But uh, this was, wasn't the best one in the series, but it's... Uh, it's always enjoyable to see them together. Sure, sure. I've actually only seen the first film in the series, and I do enjoy it very much. I just haven't yeah. gotten around to tracking down the rest of them. But excellent choice for sure. Yep. Okay, so what have you got for number four? Well, my number four is Anchors Away, starring Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly, as well as Jerry the Mouse. <laughs> uh, obviously, it's a pretty famous musical uh, which stars Kelly and Sinatra as two uh, sailors on leave. And at one point, Gene Kelly does a duet with the animated Jerry the Mouse from Tom and Jerry, which is a piece of cinema history. Uh, It's a fun movie. That sequence especially is just utterly fantastic. I don't love musicals, but this really is a classic in my opinion, and uh, it's a film I enjoy. Yeah, Uh, I know what you mean, that thing with Jerry. It's supremely well done. Yeah, especially considering, again, the time period. You know, mixing animation with live action was really not done at that point. And while their interactions, you know, aren't as as sophisticated as you'd get later on with something like Roger Rabbit, it was still pretty groundbreaking for the time. Oh, totally, yeah. It didn't quite make it onto my list, though, because I thought the rest of the film doesn't quite doesn't quite work for me. Sure. It's got, got some great dances and things like that, but yeah, it doesn't quite work as a whole. Fair enough. Uh, my number four is, you've already mentioned it, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably the definitive film version so far. It's just uh, it's a great story, dark story, and it, it does it 
very well. My number three is Brief Encounter, directed by David Lean, most famous, of course, for Lawrence of Arabia, and starring Celia Johnson and Trevor Howard. And um, I actually just saw this film for the first time recently, but I was really impressed by it. It's a it's a it's a drama, and it's um. It's basically just about this, this, these two people who are both married and they meet and they f- sort of fall in love and have kind of this um, sort of – it's an affair, a very subtle affair, but it's an affair yeah. nonetheless. Nothing's and, um, actually done as it physically. But. Right, exactly. But, you know, what I love about it is, A, it's very different from Lawrence of – you know, you think of David Lean, you think of the, the expanse of Lawrence of Arabia and how big the film is. And then this movie is so small and intimate. I mean, almost the entire film takes place in a train station with a few exceptions. Um, and I also love the way he wraps the film around tying the first scene and the last scene together. I won't say anything more about them, but it's a really neat sort of way of looking at the same scene from two perspectives, and it's it's just terrific. A really a really great film. Yeah, well, for the third week in a row, I think, uh-huh. uh, number three is the same because I've got Brief Encounter down very as well. Very good. Excellent. As you say, it's a, it's a very small story, but the, the acting is just brilliant. Just the way half the time they're the showing the growing love and passion and disappointment and frustration just just with their eyes right. especially i think is it near the end where they're interrupted by a friend and, the to- and she's talking to them and they realize the, you know they just want to say goodbye to each other but they can't because she's there it's just uh yeah it's uh, it's a classic film yeah it's definitely yeah. you know it's one of those things where you know you think how can people fall in love when you know at minutes at a time it seems like but you know they convey everything so convincingly like you said with their eyes and with the performances yeah. that it, you know it just works on every level yeah Really good film. Okay, right. so that's uh, we have the same for number three. Let's see what have we got for number I, two. I think we're going to be different on number two because I think I'm throwing in a curveball here, but maybe I'm not. So we'll find okay. out. My number two is Scarlet Street, starring Edward G. Robinson and Joan Bennett, and directed by the great Fritz Lang, who is best known, of course, for directing Metropolis in 1927. Yeah. And it's uh, kind of a film noir, and Edward G. Robinson plays a, a guy who's like sort of an office schlub and working the same job for 20 years, and he's also a painter. Then he meets this femme fatale who takes his paintings and starts selling them as her own uh, with his permission. But then things get complicated when her boyfriend enters the picture and things get twisty from there and it's it's not a really famous film i don't think but i love edward g robinson and this is actually just a great example of film noir at its best there's a lot of twists and turns and just a really killer ending so uh definitely a movie i recommend you track down if you like classic hollywood and you like film noir or even if you don't this might be the movie that changes your mind so so okay because i've uh... I've not seen that, and I've not don't really know much about it. Yeah, it's really good. I don't want to say too much about the story, but it's it's very cool. I'll have to I'll have to check that down. And funnily enough, thinking about it, I haven't seen many Edward G. Robinson films. Oh, really? I love which him. Which is weird because I do every time I've seen him in song, I've really liked him. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. He's yeah. he's fantastic. I'll have to try and get hold of some Edward G. Robinson films. Sure, sure. Okay, so my number two. It's actually two films because I couldn't decide, but they're basically the same film. Okay, it's uh, Pursuit to Algiers and The House of Fear. Uh, Sherlock Holmes films, uh, Basil Rathbone and Nigel right. Bruce as gotcha. uh, Holmes and Watson. Yep. Uh, Pursuit to Algiers is the one where they're escorting their heir to a European throne back home. And the House of Fear is the one with the orange pips, people die. Sherlock Holmes and Basil Rathbone was an excellent Holmes. And I couldn't decide between the two which one. Uh, so I, I put them both in number two. 
I like it. Actually, the only reason that neither of those ended up on my list was I've seen pretty much all of the Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films. I watched them religiously when I was a kid, and I, yeah. I, I he's fantastic. Um, but I couldn't remember any of them specifically because it's been so long since I watched them. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't feel right picking one over the other. So I should have just done what you did. But uh, they are they are <laughs> excellent choices for sure. They are. I mean, I've as you I've, same as you. I watched lo- they always used to be on uh, BBC Two over here when I was a kid. Yeah. Like usually on a weekend, you know, during a day and a weekend, you used right. to watch them over and over. Yep, yep, exactly. Always good fun. Exactly. Here we are then from number one for 1945. What have you got, Mike? Well, I can tell you we're not going to have the same pick because mine has already appeared on your list. Okay. And it is, and then there were none. Ah. Uh, this is, uh, like you said, it's a great film based on an Agatha Christie novel, and it's it's actually probably one of the very first like suspense thrillers that I ever saw. I remember watching it as a kid, and mm-hmm. it's it's one of those movies that stuck with me for years and years and years and years, and I always, always like I've never read an Agatha Christie book in my life. Yeah, but I would always tell people I was an Agatha Christie fan because when I was younger, because I loved this movie so much and had such an impact on me. And you know, it's one of those movies that, that has kind of a twist in it. And again, as a yeah. young a young viewer, it just it really blew my mind, you know, because I, I I couldn't figure out the mystery. And then when it's revealed, it's like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. <laughs> um, so it is, you know, it's it's one of those films that just it. Not only do I really enjoy it, and it's a great story, but it had a really deep impact on me. And it's one of those films that stuck with me my entire life. And I think those are kind of seminal moments when you're a, when you're a film buff, somebody who's really a you know a, a student of cinema history. I think yeah. there's a handful of films that can have an impact like you on that. And and this was one of them for me. Excellent. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah, and there's a my mum's read every single Agatha Christie story. Oh yeah, uh, many many times, and right. she says there's, there's still some characters. That have never been turned into films, you know, and stories. Right, right. Uh, unrelated to uh, like uh, the famous main novels and like Poirot and Miss Marple. Right. So there's there's still some Agatha Christie things which uh, Hollywood could yeah. mine. Yeah, yeah. She's so. due for a resurgence, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, then I'm waiting to hear. Then Phil, don't keep me okay. in suspense. What's your number one pick? Well, my number one pick is based on a Noel Coward play, and it's a Blythe Spirit. Which is very good film stars Rex Harrison, Constance Cummings, and Kay Hammond, and the wonderful Margaret Rutherford as Madame Arcuti. Of as we mentioned, Miss Marple, she played Miss Marple in lots of films. Uh, it's a great film. Charles and his second wife Ruth are haunted by the first wife Elvira, so they get in Madame Arcuti to talk to her, and it's a bit of a farce. It's funny. It's got ghosts in, and it's a it's a really enjoyable. Makes you laugh. And I I saw when I was a kid, and every time it's on, it's it still stands up. It's a great film. It's a great pick, and the only reason it didn't make my list is because it's been so, so long since I've seen it that I honestly <laughs> couldn't remember enough about it to justifiably put it on my list and feel like I was being honest. <laughs> you know Fair what I'm enough. Saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. I, um, I, you know, I know I saw it at some point, but honestly, it it would be if I watched it again, it'd be like watching a new movie for me. So, uh, but <laughs> but a terrific pick, and I'm I'm sure had I seen it more recently, it would have been on my list. So yeah, yeah. All right, very nice. Well, there you go. That's our top tens from 1945. Phil, do you have the box office numbers handy? Let's see how we stacked up against the uh, the audiences of 1945. Okay, the top grossing films of 1945, number 10 was Wonder Man, which starred Danny Kaye, okay. which I've never seen, so not yeah. on my list. Uh, number 9 was The Valley of Decisions, which starred Greer Garson and Gregory Peck. Mm-hmm. Number 8 was Thrill of a Romance, starring Van Johnson and Esther Williams. Number 7 was a film called Saratoga Trunk, starring Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman. Mm-hmm. Number six, Weekend at the Waldorf, Ginger Rogers, Lana Turner, and Walter Pigeon. Five Anchors Away, 
So oh, there that's you go. Fun there. Number four was Mildred Pierce, starring Joan Crawford, Jack Carson, Zachary Scott. And I've never actually seen it, though. No, I, I haven't either. I need to get that one yep. boxed off. Uh, number three is Leave Her to Heaven, starring Gene Tierney and Cornell Wilde. And number two was Spellbound. Right. And number one was The Bells of St. Mary's, which stars Bing Crosby and Ingrid Bergman. And I couldn't remember whether I'd seen that or not. Yeah, that's the same for yeah. me. I know that that was a yeah. huge movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it was one of those, I, you know, I think it's one of those Christmas films that I've seen pieces of. Yeah, you know, I've yeah, caught bits and parts of it on TV, but I don't I don't have a strong enough opinion of the actual film as a whole to decide whether it should have been on my list or not. So I reckon when I do sit down to watch it, there's going to be loads of bits and it all going, oh, it's this Right, film. right, exactly, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm sure it'll be yeah. the exact same thing for me, so... All right, well, there you go. So that's our top 10 films of 1945. If you have uh, picks from 1945 you'd like to share with us and here in a future episode, please feel free to share them with us. I guess now is a pretty good time, right, Phil, to tell people how they can get yeah. in touch with us? Okay, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at after underscore the ending. And we're also at facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you'll be listening to this on one of the various podcasting places. But if you're trying to find a different place to listen to us, we're on iTunes. Also, you can find us on soundcloud.com backslash after the ending podcast. And we're also on Stitcher. And you can email us at after the ending at verizon.net. Phil, let's tell people what they can expect to hear from us next week. What do we got coming up? I think this is going to be a good one. Well, next week, there's going to be more pirate impressions. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Can't wait. Can't wait. Oh, he's back again. <laughs> uh, there's going to be. Yeah, okay. Let's get to the films. We'll be doing After the Endings for Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz. Yes, starring Simon Pegg yes, and Nick uh, Frost. Starring Simon Sean And I still... <laughs> There's Sean Connery. Think, keeps, keeps pecking. I think it's Ed keeps popping his head up. Shaun of the Dead is my favorite one. Really? There's now, I think. No, I, I, I don't know about that. I don't know. I mean, maybe for you, yes. I'm not mm. saying no, like you can't have yeah. that opinion. But to me, Shaun of the Dead will always be the top of that trilogy. Yeah, it's still... No. I thought I think it's maybe reached a you know a tipping point. Don't All know. right. All right. Uh, so we're going to be doing after the ending for Hot Fuzz and also for a little film called Blade Runner. Yeah, we figure we set our sights, we set our sights high and just go for one of the most beloved and iconic science fiction films of all time. Yeah, I'm sure we won't have any any so, upset I'm listeners. Sure, we won't we have any upset well, readers maybe when because we're done with that. I know, I readers, I wait a minute, we don't have readers. The more times I watch listeners. Blade Runner, the less and less I actually like it. Uh, so maybe somebody will get hit uh. by a bus. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Or be a or be a serial killer. Yeah, well, that's, that's serial killer is probably going to be a given, isn't it? Sure, sure, seems like. But uh, no, it's still it's, it's still a classic film, and we thought we'd get our after the ending in before the sequel is made, and we can then go back and compare it. Yeah, that should be fun. But we got to get it in now because otherwise it'll be ruined. We won't be able to do it anymore. So, so next week it is Blade Runner, Blade Runner, yes. Blade Runner, Blade Runner, Blade Runner's sequel. <laughs> yeah. So mine's going to be an ice skating story. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, ice skating robots. Right. Ridley Scott on ice. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah uh, um, also, we'll be do- looking at uh, our top tens for the 100 years and 100 episodes will be the year 1920. All right. So, Phil, where can people find you online if they would like to do that? You can find me at liveforfilms.com uh, where we talk lots of movie news, films, reviews, interviews, Cool arts, trailers, you name it, it's on there. And also with all the associated social media channels. And Mike, where can they find you? Well, I have something a little different this week. Right now they can find me on Amazon.com because I just published my new book, which is called Blood Brothers, Bloodsucker Blues Part 2. It's not about Phil Hurrah. and I. I know it sounds like it, but um, <laughs> it is uh, it is the sequel to my hit 
uh, best-selling, I'm going to just throw that out there because I can. It's uh, the sequel to my book, Bloodsucker Blues. This is part two. Uh, so if you guys, the first book is available for free. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple's iBooks, Kobo, anywhere you can buy books, you can get the first one for free. And then if you like it, the second one's just a measly two ninety nine. So support your favorite podcast writer dude and uh go swing by pick up a free book and see if you like it and then you can also Excellent. thank you you can also find me on uh, wordsoutloud.com where you can get some other free stuff including the first book so you can just go there and get it uh and you can find me at facebook.com slash mike spring official lovely i've uh, i've read the first book in the series and it was most enjoyable and i have not picked up the second one yet but i am looking forward to reading it well thank you kindly i appreciate that yes i wonder you said it was 2.99 so that'll be two dollars 99 yes sorry for the yes, for our yes. international listeners i uh have no idea how much it'll cost you but it'll probably be uh very little because well you know i want with the current the current events going on in the uk and the what's happening with the pound and the markets who knows what's going right, to could be a real so, bargain yeah could, <laughs> who knows be, yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right well on that note then uh before i uh you know drive away any of our listeners <laughs> i will uh send us off into the night Thank you, as always, for listening. If you get the chance, please swing on by iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, come on. You've been listening to all these episodes so far. I'm talking to you. Yes, you. Get on iTunes or get on somewhere else, SoundCloud or Stitcher, and leave us a review. Tell us what you think. Leave us comments. If there's a funny bit, just put a little comment on and go, ha, 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 ha. That made me laugh. Because especially on SoundCloud, you can do whatever you want on the timeline. There you go. Uh, so do that. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Yeah, you know, you know what to do. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know what to do. Well, that's going to wrap us up for now. As always, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. Don't I say something? What do I usually say? I don't know why I'm already messing up. Okay. <laughs> well, that didn't take long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Pretty accurate. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm not... I'm not uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Well, I am glad you asked, Mike. We are doing. <laughs> are you really? <laughs> yes. So I'm glad you, you you were at a loss for words. Yes. This week we'll be doing our top 10 of 1981. Nope, we will not. No, we won't. Because we did that thing. already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this... this list might seem a little familiar to you listeners. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So why don't we, why don't we jive right into things? We're going to yeah, jive. we could do okay. that. Start we'll be, the music. Right, exactly. I'm doing a little boogie-woogie, <laughs> you know, bugle boy. All right. <laughs> oh, hold on. Yeah, I forgot what I said. Ah, okay. Dodgy handwriting now. <laughs> my my favorite Sean Connery impression is the one that Tom Hardy did for the entirety of The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> <laughs> I just took a drink, man. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Didn't mean to. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Oh, I saw. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I expect you to die, Mr. Wayne. You know, that's pretty <laughs> much... You expect me to talk? Exactly. It's pretty much just, you know, Tom Hardy doing a drunken Sean Connery, and that's, yeah. you know, that's his entirety of Bane. So. <laughs> I've got to watch it again with that in mind. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it'll change the movie for you. A group of rogue soldiers led by General Hummel, played by Ed Harris, and Major... Hold on. Yes. Hold on. When you said soldiers, it sounded like you're doing Sean Connery. Group oh. of rogue soldiers. <laughs> No, may, I must be all the, the sparkling water I'm drinking is going to my head. Super. <laughs> okay, the day after. Goodspeed and Carl have been traveling across the U.S. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Goodspeed and who? 
Is Carl the name of his girlfriend? Oh, I thought you said Carl, and I was like, what, what did he have, a son? Although we don't oh, know crikey, about a son no. that you no, named Carl. Carl. It is Carl, isn't it? I think it is, yes, but it just sounded like you said Carl, and I was very Carl's confused. Like, okay, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, you do like to name characters <laughs> yeah, Carl. I do, don't I? So, Phil, why don't you fill people in on our mini feature for the week? Yes, we did. did oh, yes. Well, I was... <laughs> do you have any idea what the mini feature yes. is? <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you lead me in? Or don't. Um, Oh, no, given the, uh, what's happened in the air. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fine, fine, fine. Yeah. My mistake, my mistake. Let's give some context. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm not the idiot, Mike, today. You're the idiot, okay? <laughs> Let's be clear on that. <laughs> okay, so, Phil, why don't you climb into that time machine of yours and take us back to 1945? I will say, you know, go ahead. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I'm... I'm... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. going to mess up and then I'm going to make weird growling noises and that's just what I do I thought you had to call back to the werewolves yeah. last week <laughs> very good uh, my number 10 is uh, Brewster's Millions directed by who's it gone it, it wasn't God no I don't no. know for sure who it was but I'm relatively yeah. confident it wasn't God <laughs> alright um, <sighs> so my number 10 is Captain Kid star- I did all over again so my number, at least, at least we know we'll have good bloopers. <laughs> Never a shortage of that once the impressions start coming out. All right. So my number 10 is Captain Kid starring Charles Lawton. And... Ah. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Are you ready, kid? <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Ah. Deep breath, deep breath, Mm. deep breath. Okay, one more time. Are you going to keep keep making? I can't even talk. Are you going to keep making that noise every time I say this, or should should we just keep that? No, it's okay. Okay. Go on. We can do it now. All right. Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm trying, but I know the minute I start talking, I'm gonna start laughing again. So. Go on. You can do it. Okay. Well, my. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Okay. Oh, here we go. Okay. I feel it now. I feel I feel the I feel it leaving my body. Okay. Well <laughs> Come on, Mike, you can do it. Uh, okay. Where's all the room gone? If I do maybe if I do the whole thing in a pirate voice, it'll 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 negate the you know Ah, that's the way to do okay. it. All right. Okay. It's back in the room. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm, I'm getting there. All right. Well, my number ten is Captain Kid, starring Charles. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I, I swear. It's that thing now that got me laughing, and I can't stop. You know. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs>